Hello and welcome to Clappercast, a weekly discussion of all things cinema. I'm your host, Editor-in-Chief Jack Luke Sharp, and today I'm happy to be joined by Cass and Tamar. Hello, hello. Alina Folds. Hello. And Diego Andalus. Hey. On today's episode, we're discussing American Pickle starring Seth Rogen, Amy Simon's She Dies Tomorrow, and finally, James Darcy's Made in Italy. Let's start with American Pickle. Cossacks. All right, so what are you doing, man? You will take down vanilla vodka, or I will do violence. What? You will take down vanilla vodka, or I will do violence. Look, buddy, I don't have time for all that. An immigrant worker at a pickle factory is accidentally preserved for 100 years and wakes up in modern-day Brooklyn. He learns his only surviving relative is his great-grandson, a computer coder who we can't connect with. Carson, let's begin with you. This is a film that, you know, it has a very strange premise, and for that I was actually really looking forward to it. I think Seth Rogen, out of all the male comedians right now, really picks solid projects most of the time compared to Will Ferrell. I know you can talk about, like, his whole career recently has not been that great. Uh, Seth Rogen normally picks, like, really strong, smart comedy, so I really was hopeful for this, and I think it almost gets there. I think there's a ton of potential. The screenplay has natural openings, not just for really solid comedy, but also for actual legitimate emotional depth. Unfortunately, though, I just think with every opportunity this film creates, it fails to actually jump on any of those opportunities to be something really interesting. I will, you know, praise the film for the comedy within it with this premise of someone from the past coming into the future. There are obviously jokes that seem inevitable. Him, you know, discovering a phone for the first time. Him, you know multiple jokes that you would expect to see in this type of comedy that the film wisely actually stays away from. And I think it is inspired and, you know, unique in that sense. Um, But emotionally, it just never feels like it actually bites the bullet and goes and actually explores the message it wants to have or the emotional depth within these characters, what it means for each of these characters actually meeting each other. Um, it's a film that constantly has potential, but just never backs it up. And I think the third act, especially, it makes some really bizarre character choices playing into, honestly, like problematic jokes that they never fully question, like the moral, the morality of. It's a film that makes one of its main characters really, really unlikable. But instead of doing the work to make him likable afterwards and get you to root for him, it just expects you to naturally fall back in line with wanting the best for the character. It just is a film that I found really, really disappointing. Um, I thought this was going to be really something special and where it's nothing terrible, it clearly could have been something more. I actually have to say that I came in with different expectations. I thought that this was going to be another one of those by the book Seth Rogen comedies, but I do have to appreciate the fact that Brandon Trost and his cinematographer really were able to shape a world and kind of give the film a feel that made it feel, I even say like on a technical merit, it looks like an art film or like one of those art house films rather than something you'd find in theaters like This Is The End or one of those kind of more raunchy comedies. 
That being said, I was actually enjoying where the story was going. And I liked, there were quite a few aspects of social commentary going on there that I really appreciated. But the thing is, just as it was starting to build up and I was thinking, wow, I can't wait to see where this film will go next. It just abruptly ended. And in my opinion, that would have been a fine ending if, as Carson said, like they would have worked a little bit more on developing the characters and stuff. But I was expecting the same thing where the characters would have been developed in maybe the next couple of acts and then eventually both of them would be likable and successful. However, since it was so focused on getting to that point, the whole movie felt just like an elongated first act or maybe even a pilot of a TV show. And it just, it felt really abrupt. And I actually thought it was a joke similar to in Vice where the credits start rolling halfway through that the credits were already there at that point. Having to sound like the most cynical bastard every week we seem to do this podcast. I think I'm more in the court that you are, Cass. I'm not calling you a cynical bastard at all, don't worry. But um, I, I think going into this with both your sort of separate expectations, I don't know really what to think of this going into it because ultimately you're getting a Seth Rogen vehicle that's one thing interesting. And then the whole idea of the film is another thing. And then you find out, you know, the whole idea behind the American pickle circumstance. So going into this, to say that my expectations were muddled would, would probably be an understatement. And to be honest, leaving it, um, I'm slightly disappointed, if not, um, well, incredibly underwhelmed. I mean, I think the intentions of this film are quite clear. I mean, it, it explores a, a myriad of, of issues regarding, uh, you know, religion, social tensions. Um, and for the first first act, I think those two things are very interesting and, and, and explored to, to a certain degree where I'm engaged. And I'm not going to lie, I was quite hooked that first act. But ultimately, this just turns into like a farcical and uninteresting repetitive bore from the, from the moment that, you think this film should really get going when, when both of these two characters meet. And from that moment on, it was just sort of a, a, a drop off of form to an extent where I wouldn't say I, did, I found it difficult to finish, but, but not to tell a lie, I, this, this was a, a bit of a struggle for me. Um, I just felt that it went into this con conventional and, and just disinterested in exploring itself. I mean, just to, just to point out the convention there, there's nothing here that, and I'm going to get onto this in a minute, it's one of my biggest grabs, but I just felt there was nothing here to be said with a, with a unique voice. And, and regarding its convention, it's just so hollow and opaque and just quite frankly boring. And, and then to, to say it was disinterested in itself, um, I, I probably think that's probably one of my main gripes as well. It's that the film just seems to lose interest. It, it wants to go in all these different ways and explore the themes I just brought up. But other than that, and to the extent, does it do that? Yes, but to the to the point where I was expecting it, it sort of just holds off. And like you said, Diego, if if if, if this film you you, thought, you felt just ended in its third act, um, I, not to sound cynical, but I think I was I was slightly glad that it was over and done quite prematurely, rather than having to have a this this overall arc come to full full circle because I don't think they would have been able to achieve it regardless. Um, I I think my main issue, like I said before, is that even with all the film's intentions, which granted it does, it does bring up, I just, I'm just felt feeling, what does it actually say that is worthy of people's time or saying something fresh? And the more I think about that question, I don't really have an answer aside from the fact that something pops into my mind and then I think about it more and then I'm left thinking, well, actually this film just, has surface level conversations on, on really interesting topics, especially in 
2019-2020 New York. I mean, really interesting uh, comments to, to make and then it just falls flat, not wanting to sort of investigate it to, to a further degree where not only for the film's sake, for, for character death, but for the audience to, to, to get something out of it. I mean, I think Rogan is, is pretty good. I think he's, he's good in both roles, but undoubtedly, as you said, Carson, there's one where he's so unlikable beyond belief and then the film tries and twists and turns that character to, to have a conscience towards the end. And to be honest, what he actually does to the other character, for me personally, was 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 so manifesting such evil behaviour. It wasn't really a saviour for that for him before long. Um, I think his his rendition of the the, the elder character um, far outweighs the younger one. Um, I think, as you said, I'm not to paraphrase, but I think he's just annoying and shitty above all else. And one thing I, I seem to notice is that. Comparing these two is going to be ridiculous, and 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 don't think anything more than what I'm saying here. But I'm slowly finding examples of of Seth Rogen now. What Adam Sandler used to do and is still doing um, now is where he makes a film, and instead of having that film stand on its own two feet, he'll bring his friends in. And granted, out of the two, one friendship circle um, far outweighs the other with talent, uh, dramatically speaking. However. Here, it's just a, a concoction of just friends to Rogan with small cameras. I mean, uh, there's, a, there's a, a few buzz, BuzzFeed people who turn up here, and then there's um, a few people from relatively um, similar grounds of, of, of Elliot, uh, the character who plays Elliot, sorry, the, the performer who plays Elliot in Broad City, Rogan guest starred on, he's in here. And to be honest, it's one of these small nitpicks I have, and it's, it's such a ridiculous thing to have, but nevertheless, I just find myself constantly taken out of the picture when I see this because it just breaks the breaks the whole environment for me. But but overall, I mean, that's a small issue I have with with the film in general, which is just just incredibly subpar. I think I agree with all of your opinions on an American Pickle. Uh, I am a very big fan of Seth Rogen. I love all of those like comedy guys. Like my Letterbox bio is literally my film tastes are shaped by the five dollar bin at Walmart. So I was really looking forward to an American Pickle and I did like it, but I was disappointed. It does feel like the film just never goes as deep as it should because it goes into all of these things, these themes that could be explored like immigration and faith and family. And it just doesn't do anything with it. And it's very disappointing. And then what Diego said about the ending coming rather abruptly, I totally agree with that. And it's definitely because the characters aren't given enough time to like breathe and develop and like get to know each other. Um, like, yes, they're family, but they're like separated by a hundred years. And just, it's very bizarre how the conflict between the two start. And it's also very bizarre how the conflicts between them resolve because in between both of them do terrible, terrible things to each other. And then it's just forgiven like that. And I don't know if that's supposed to be, well, oh, they're family. So they forgive each other easily. Or if it's just like trying to get out of the situation they put them in. Because even at the beginning of the movie, when the scientists are explaining like how uh, Herschel was like able to survive in this like pickle bride, like Herschel like kind of breaks the fourth wall 
and it's like, oh, the scientists explained it very well. Everybody was satisfied and happy and they don't like actually show what happened. We just like, it just gets like brushed over because they don't know how to explain somebody surviving for a hundred years in frickin' pickled brine. And I just like, ugh. it's the more I think about it, the more disappointed in the movie as a whole I am. But I will say, I think Seth Rogen did really, really well playing both Ben and Herschel. Um, ben kind of felt like, uh, like the younger Seth Rogen felt like um, just any one of like Seth Rogen's previous characters. Like there wasn't really anything special about him, but he did a really good job as Herschel. Like he definitely lost himself in that Eastern European like Schlips accent. I, I think he did a really good job as Herschel. So I think that's the one thing the movie has going for it is Seth Rogen's acting, but like that's it really. When I look at the film, I think continually go back to just the mistake it was, and I'm not going to get too far into spoilers, but there is a point in this movie for a large portion of the film where the two characters played by Seth Rogen are against each other. And it reminds me a lot of my issues with the film The Insult that came out a couple years ago. It was an Oscar-nominated foreign language film. I don't know if anyone saw it, but it had this very similar premise. And I think it just doesn't work most of the time. Not only does it just take up so much of the plot as you have uh, the runtime, as you have the two characters fighting against each other, but it also makes them so unlikable, which is something I think, I mean, we've all said it. I think that's the major issue here is that these characters are just unlikable as they tear each other apart and you never get the time with them to really explore their emotional backgrounds or anything like that. I will say in defense or I'll, not necessarily in defense, but one positive throughout this film is the production quality that really, really amazed me, especially in the beginning portion of the film. The cinematography and visual style are shockingly good. I know this was originally going to go into theatrical release, so obviously that helped out. Um, but it just, it takes risks and it has like this very distinct style that most comedies don't have. But I continually just go back to that plot point of having these two characters against each other. And it just completely derails and just goes far. It just loses the point of its story and just goes into the side, which I just, I continually go back to, I think is the biggest mistake within the film. I think it's surprising that about, about the opening 15 minutes or so because it's very reminiscent of those old Universal Monster movies and now I, I spoke about Dave Franco's The Rental and how I thought he would do a pr pretty good job at um, making a Friday the 13th film. I mean if anyone wants to hire, um, I, I believe Diego mentioned the director's name which I'm just going to find here, uh, Brendan Trost. I think he would make a pretty good uh, Universal Monsters movie uh, compared to something like Ryan Gosling so definitely give him a shot but um, I just want to uh, fix it on just for a second on what Alina said because I think Alina's made the most interesting point to me but but it wasn't a point about the film is that Alina's um not to not to like <laughs> drop you in Alina I've just said Alina's um uh favorite films you know coordinated by the uh Walmart five dollar bin and it's interesting because for me personally I, I think that's that's probably the, the 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 best example to describe this film it is just that but for me as well just to go further this film ultimately feel, feels like a, a film that has a star that has just blown up um, with, with all these 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 big blockbuster films and he's, he's, he's now huge. But it feels almost like this film's release was re released to, to capsize on that achievement and it was shot five years earlier when nobody knew who he was. It just feels like the, the wrong time, the wrong film. And palette-wise uh, and... and, and creative output wise for Rogan it just feels like a very strange film to, to, for him to to go out and, 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 and 
through his production banner make that in a circle there you know the, the James Franco's the Jonah Hills um you know the Jay Barrichells and and Seth Rogen they're all now exploring uh, filmmaking on a more serious um platform I mean uh, Rogan's directing writing producing you know you've got Preacher on AMC uh, he's done very well for himself I mean you've got James Franco say what you will but um, he's relatively successful. You've got, you know, Dave Franco. You've got Jonah Hill, who's an Academy Award-nominated actor. Who, who, you know, you go back ten years, you would not have, uh, you would not have thought of that at all. Um, but I think Rogan falls in with this in the same area that Jay Barrichell's *Random Acts of Violence* does. That film's under embargo, so I'm not going to talk about it too much. But it just feels like a, a, an overstep, an oversimplification of a film that could have been so much more. And that's where I'm landing on it. I, I don't. And again, it's a recurring issue for me, I, just to point out, I'm just woefully disappointed with stuff like this because it has every piece to be quite an exceptional um, little film. I mean, Alina uh, uh, mentioned it, the, the, the topic of immigration, which is a central issue in this film, is almost a comedic um, embellishment. And you, you just, for me personally, I just find that what's happening in the States at the moment with ICE, and I'm just, maybe, maybe I, I, I'm just a little bit too touchy on that topic, people think that people can just joke about anything and, and to that regard, okay, fair enough. But with this, I just felt like there was something more to say and, and to, to, to just use it as a redundant scapegoat for comedic intent, slightly left a sour taste in my mind. And, and throughout, I just felt that if, if, if the character, if Rogan's character, Ben, which I think he's now doing the Keanu Reeves, John thing where he plays John in every film. Now Seth Rogan's playing Ben in everything. Um, knocked up, stuff like that. He played also a character called Ben, and not surprised he, he did that film with Barbara Streisand, he was called Ben anyway. But anyway, moving on. So, regarding Rogan as Ben, I mean, it's an interesting sort of central uh, conversation to have about the elder character and, and, and Rogan as a younger character and how those two ideologies meld. But the thing is that because Ben's such a shitty person and there's no sort of overarching theme about how he, how he get, grows a conscience because he suddenly does it on the Canadian border of all things, which is meant to be this in-joke, which is like, ha, yep, get it. Canadian's always nice. Alina, you prove that. Every, every Canadian I've ever met is really nice. But it was just like, that joke's sort of like slightly saturated now. Um, and then, you know, he has all this, you know, he's got this app basically in the film and he thinks it's going to be the next big thing. And you think like, you never find out what his actual job is. I didn't anywhere. And, and then he's got like two IMAX and this New York apartment, which his rent is like three grand a month. I'm just thinking like, am I, am I supposed to feel, feel bad for you? Like, I, I don't feel bad for Ben at all. In fact, just to, just to sort of double, double down on this, Ben's an arsehole throughout this whole film. And the more I think about it, the more I get quite agitated, the fact that the film does nothing to sort of not support that, that ideology of him just being a prick. Like there's just nothing there to caveat um, his 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 behaviour. Said that he lost his parents, which the film touches upon, and it's this sort of meandering topic throughout, and then it just ends. And I'm just I'm just sort of like this to me is woefully inept as a, as a film in general. And I think it's if this was this, regardless of its release, I know you've mentioned it, Cass, and I think it's an interesting topic to have. But this feels like a HBO Max film. This feels like it was meant to go to streaming. I wonder if that was always the plan and, and, and its cinema release was just up in the air. I'd, I'd, be, I'd be very interested to know, in the know, in fact, uh, to see how would, this would have done in, in, in theatres because, you know, the crowd of Rogan, like Alina, it'd be interesting to find Alina's opinion on it if she would have travelled 
during COVID to watch this in a theatre because I know it is showing in certain areas in England in theatres. But for me, this is not really a cinema appeal for Rogan to, to pull in an audience. So maybe it's best bet is on streaming. I know that's sort of a tangent I've gone through there, but I'm just I'm just slightly worried about HBO Max's sort of identity here because you've got the, the, the elusive Snyder Cut and then you've got this with very little else coming through. And then we look at Apple TV, which, you know, the, Scorsese is looking to shoot in February for Killers of the Flower Moon. And, they've, you know, they've got Greyhound, they've got quite a lot of TV on the, on the stuff of Spike Jones now with the Beastie Boys story, you know, The Banker. So it's interesting to see where HBO Max land, because with this, they just don't for me whatsoever. Okay, so um, I think with going to see this an American Pickle in theaters as a fan, as of right now, with how Canada and like Ontario and Ottawa is doing with COVID, I would have gone to see this for sure. Um, like I love Seth Rogen. Every time like Seth Rogen or Adam Sandler or one of those guys is like in a movie, I'm like, okay, I don't even care if it's playing across town, I'll go see it. Um, and I know a lot of people who are like fans of these guys would go too, because when Uncut Gems finally came out in theaters for us in Canada, it was the first week of January and our like big theater chain Cineplex wasn't playing it, only the independent cinemas were. And I remember seeing all of the, uh, the, tw- the Twitter accounts for our, our independent cinemas, the, the Bytown, they were the only ones playing it. And they were getting all these calls from people who had never been there before asking like, when are you playing the new Adam Sandler movie? Like, we all want to see the new Adam Sandler movie. And I went and saw it opening night, and it was packed. It was like a line around the block. And I've never seen the independent cinema that busy. And Adam Sandler did that. So I think uh, Seth Rogen fans are definitely, like, on the same level as, like, Sandman Nation. So I think with uh, how COVID is in, like, at least my area, all, all of us would have, like, gotten to see it for sure. Just to follow up on that, Alina, I'm, I'm very, because um, obviously you're an in-house expert on Seth Rogen, and I think just from, from this topic, I think, I think no one would question that whatsoever, but I just wanted to, just because to, I know you're a big fan of him, um, Rogen's probably one of the last of that group I mentioned before to go into dramatic acting, and I think Steve Jobs was, was the one where it, it slightly showed his, his, what he was um, able to, to, to convey. Now this, I don't know, I, it's not as straight-laced as Steve Jobs, but regardless, I think as the elder um, character, Herschel, I think he does show that dramatic range quite well. I mean, it, it's quite dry humour, but it's very dramatic. Within Steve Jobs and this, do you see that he's developed as a dramatic actor, or do you think that it's going to be an Adam Sandler-esque um, sort of output where every maybe couple of years, I mean, well, Sandler's maybe 10 years between Punch Up Love and, um, and, you know, Uncut Gems and the Mywit stories that will get a really dramatic turn? Or do you think Seth Rogen's going to be more committed to that cause? I think uh, he'll probably do the same thing as Adam Sandler because I like to watch interviews of like Seth Rogen and Adam Sandler and Judd Apatow. And they always say that they like working with their friends. So even if they do go down like the dramatic route, they're always going to come back to like working with Kevin James and Chris Rock and James Franco and Jonah Hill because that's what's comfortable for them and that's what they enjoy. So I think if Seth Rogen does venture more into like drama territory, he's always going to come back to comedy in the end. So I don't think it'll be like something he ever leaves behind. And I don't think it's going to be, drama is going to be something that he, 
Yeah, I definitely have to agree with Alina. I'd say he's actually more similar to kind of, obviously in a later stage of his career, but he's definitely more similar to Andy Samberg, in which like, I do think that, yeah, maybe he'll go a little bit more dramatic, but he'll never really leave his comedy roots and he won't go for a wild dramatic turn like Adam Sandler. Because like Adam Sandler, yeah, you could say that's a little bit more serious, especially Uncut Gems. It is a little bit comedic, but his character at least tries to be serious. While Seth Rogen's Ben in here and like at Andy Samberg's Nile, they still kind of have these comedic aspects to them. However, I do have to say that Seth Rogen's Ben, as you were saying, honestly, what he exhibits in the film is kind of borderline sociopathic behavior. Because like, okay, one could expect, oh, maybe the pickle card is doing well. Oh, I'll leave a bad Yelp review saying, boo-hoo, I don't like you. But he calls the health office to shut him down. And then when he doesn't work, okay, maybe he was a little bit mad there. He, lets, he tells him, go run your own Twitter, knowing exactly what's going to happen. And even after that, when he's having even more success, he deliberately asks him questions to bring him down and eventually get him deported, which he should be able to figure out that that's what was going to happen if he kept on pressing that way because he knew that he wasn't actually like belonging to be an American. However, I do have to say that even though the immigration social commentary of it might have been a little bit kind of like shady or not the best, I did appreciate the fact that it kind of showed how like in our society, like even the, the lowliest of like little fights and stuff can get super overblown. And even if you keep on making mistake after mistake after mistake, there's still going to be people out there who worship you and who will do whatever you want. Like Seth wrote, like uh, I'd say Herschel, he made a ton of mistakes that a bunch of other people would have gotten canceled for, but he somehow found a way to make it a political issue and found a bunch of vocal supporters and he wasn't even meaning to do it. Like he says that he wants to run for president. He doesn't understand what he's saying. And yet the whole hall was cheering him on. Like that surely says a lot of stuff about kind of our world today and especially America as it's kind of the same phenomenon has been seen maybe like four years ago and still to this day. So I did really appreciate that aspect of it. To push back a little bit on what you guys are saying about the character of Ben, I think it's a little unfair. Well, I think it's just generally unfair to say that his character like is completely, there's no redeeming qualities and oh, why would he do this horrible stuff? Because the film sets it up to where he has an emotional background to where it makes sense why he gets so hurt and so invested in having Herschel fail and why he takes it so personally. There is, I'm not going to spoil it, but there is like legitimate substance there. Does the film properly explore it? No, it doesn't. But it is there to the point where I don't think it's fair to say, oh, you know, there's no reason why he takes it so personally, why he wants Herschel to fail. It is there to a point. My issues more was with Herschel specifically. Herschel is a very, very problematic figure. And it feels weird because the film bounces around between if they're trying to make a social commentary with Herschel um, and certain you know officials today in the american government system or if they're just trying to play it off as comedy um but he just says like he continually just says horrible things and the film never is able to like actually sit him down explore him as a character to make him rewarding instead it just plays off these very problematic elements as goofs and as laughs and that just didn't work for me um, but I think the character of Ben actually it sounds like more than most of you worked pretty well for me. I just wish that they would have properly explored those emotional depths within him because I think that would have helped the general audience get behind him a little bit more. Just to uh, wrap up and, and just 
to, to connect Diego and, and your thoughts, Carson, about this as well. I, um, I think both of your thoughts are linked to my overall issue as well. And I think, yes, the film does present problematic themes, thoughts and characters. And I think it does underwhelm on exploring that. But the thing is as well is that, yes, um, when you have a character, well, I think, I think Diego, what, what, you, what you approach is that you, you were trying to sort of make a point that um, the film ex- explores the ideology of how um, quickly um, an audience or people can, can turn and how twisted and manipulative people can be um, towards like a cause. And I understand that, but I think this is a film of no nuance that can convict on that to a, to a really satisfying degree. Uh, it's most definitely a film that, and again, not to repeat myself, I think it presents ideas, but it just does not pull through with them all. It doesn't have a finality to them. It doesn't have an arc with them. And I think perhaps we're right, Kaz. I think we may be slightly too heavy handed on, on the character of Ben. And I don't think it's a problem of Rogan. And I don't think it's, it's ultimately, it's, it's probably not underwritten in, in fact, but I just think that the support around that to, to, to um, engulf the reasons of why he chooses to do what he does isn't strong enough for me. But um, I think, I, I th- dramatic wise, I think what Rogan was meant to play Walter Cronkite in a biopic and I think he's dropped out. And I, and I just think that I do quite like it when a, when a comedic actor turns into a dramatic um, firehouse. And I, I think we've seen that from Jim Carrey. We, we, we've seen that from Steve Carell. Most, most uh, probably importantly, we've seen that from the late great Robin Williams. So it, it, it's not it's not something out of reality where Rogan will one day be a, a, an Academy Award nominated actor like like Jonah Hill is. But I'm just slightly worried that, like Adam Sandler, this is going to be far few in between for us to get really under the uh, under the microscope to see to see his ability. But um, moving on to to, to a, another film where we're, we're beginning to see um, a, a career blossom. Um, is She Dies Tomorrow. Hi. How's the new house? Good. Can you come over? Uh, I, I can't. Are you okay? I am going to die tomorrow. There is no tomorrow for me. All right, listen, Amy, I'm really freaking out right now. I feel like you put this idea of dying in my head. Can, can you just call me back? Amy's ravaged by the notion that she's going to die tomorrow, which sends her down a dizzying emotional spiral. When a skeptical friend Jane discovers Amy's feeling of imminent death to be contagious, they both begin bizarre journeys through what might be the last day of their lives. Diego, let's start with you. Okay, so this is a very, very interesting film, to say the least. I have, I wouldn't necessarily say I have mixed opinions overall, but there are certain things that could be considered both positives and negatives, even to me. So just overall, I'm very confused about it. However, I do have to say that even though there are a couple of things that can come off as incoherent, or kind of as bad storytelling. I do feel that mainly because the film is trying to be ambiguous and Amy Simetz succeeds in that and is able to build a proper atmosphere that kind of supports that choice. I feel in my opinion that it's going to be considered a great film, at least in my book, 
But I do have to say, even to this day, I'm still conflicted about it. Like it's a bit, but that's a very, very good thing about it because the fact that to this day, it's still forming an inner conversation in me about kind of the positives and negatives of the film that it's going to support a debate between the whole film community. That is a very, very good thing about it. Right. So to, where to begin with She Dies Tomorrow? Um, right. The, 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 out of everything we've probably done this podcast and throughout its probably whole history, this is the one film where I'm, I'm just slightly left um, not knowing what to actually say. Amy Simetz is, is an actress, a director who I'm zero awareness of. of. I know that she's... Um, done quite a lot of stuff with, with an ex-partner of hers. And I know that she's, she's, um, she's done relatively um, big parts here and there, but it's, she's never been something on my radar. So when this was getting slight buzz a few months ago, um, it did tickle my interest. Now, on reflection of the film itself, this is a, a truly bizarre, evocative horror drama that without sort of putting my points into one sentence, I don't think this can be put in a box of de- definition. I just don't think it can be. I, I think we'll all leave here with our descriptions of the film to be incredibly different to one another. Um, the one the one thing I'm going to just brief us as we're saying is that it's not or very often when I walk away from a film, and this is not to be like an ego trip or anything, but I'm not left thinking I'm stupid watching a film. And with this, not to not be engulfed with something is one thing, but to 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 watch it and feel like I'm generally stupid by not understanding it. Um, left to like a really, again, a really bad taste in my mouth just by thinking that I, I, I wasn't paying enough attention or that the fact that I couldn't understand it and it was my issue. And I think we'll probably get um, an idea if, I, if I'm right or wrong there by everyone else's opinion, which I'm, I'm generally really interested in finding out, to be honest, because I, I need to know if I need to watch this again or if I've got any uh, poor hot takes. But I think this film, if I can describe it but not define it, I think it's a cluster of emotive responses with an undeniably elusive and intoxicating narrative don't get me wrong like this is engaging and, and it's 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 generally quite beautiful to, to to watch of just how um how it's executed but if anything i think the very allure by definition of what attracts people to this is often they're not going to be totally inaccessible um for, for most audiences and i think it's disappointing because having one of the main selling points to a film alienate half a possible audience is not particularly the best way to go in trying to get your your, your film film shown, especially a sophomore effort, which um, this is indeed Amy Simetz's um, follow-up to a, to a director debut. Um, I mean, I, I'm sort of like slightly lost to where to go. I mean, it's, it's very Lynch-like. I think in, in, I'm trying to find a film that best describes it or, or iconography-wise, is similar, but there's just nothing really there. And obviously that's a positive to this film by, by no means. But the two films I came away from this feeling like, oh, it feels somewhat like this and somewhat like this, is David Lynch's Inland Empire meets The Invitation, which was, which was a debut on Netflix um, a few few years ago that I got to see with uh, Logan uh, Marshall Green. Aside from that, there's very little I think that it probably derives from, although it is very um, independent in its crafting. And I think it's cheaply made, but that's not a detriment to the overall product. I think it's simplistic as well, which is another um, buzzword that people think, oh, it must be rubbish then. But no, no, no. 
if you keep something simplistic, I think it'd be more effective. And I think Jonathan Glazer's Under the Skin does that. Um, I think District 9 does that as well by not having a, a fucking alien invasion in Los Angeles or New York to, to, to have it in, um, you know, South Africa where you've had apartheid, you've got social issues there. It's an interesting subversion to, 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 to John. And I think Glazer does that similar under the skin while placing an alien in Edinburgh and Glasgow, in Scotland mainly. And then you have this, which is this sort of really cheaply simplistic made science science fiction film um like constructed but ironically like i think the said techniques are like you know while evocative and engaging again are going to alienate an audience because i think it it perhaps wants the audience to think it's something and leave them walking away with it with a conversation and i think it's one of those films where i think people are going to be slightly worried about putting their comments out into the world about this because I don't think there's anything here that can back anyone's theories up about what this is about. I mean, there's one major one I'm seeing online, which I'm not particularly fond of, but it's hard to, to argue against. But um, to, just to get on a few more positives, because I feel like I'm, I'm not really going anywhere. I think um, I'm beginning to really like Chris Mancina. Um, I think I think I've seen a lot of his stuff prior to this, but I never knew who he was. I think Birds of Prey. I think he, he took that film by storm with, ironically, the, with the characters there. Um, he's ironically enough um, one of the standouts. So I, I think that goes to showcase his skill as a, a craftsmanship as an actor. Um, aside from that, I think it's it's a very difficult film to sort of discuss because nothing really happens in it, but it's a film chopped and it's full to the brim of, of, of plot. So again, and then sort of left at an impasse. But the one thing I, I, I don't like, and it's ironic that we're going to talk, I'm going to mention this, and I think not a lot of other people have done, is that we talk about Rogan with all of his friends, all of his mates in his, in his films, which I think can work and often they're not can, and I think Sandler's similar. Here, there's Adam Wingard and Michelle Rodriguez who pop up. Now, Wingard is not really in the public eye, so his cameo, I think for diehard film people, will be like slightly, oh, that's Adam Wingard. That's weird. And then Michelle Rodriguez pops up here in a, in, a, in a cameo that not only doesn't make any sense contextually within the film, and if anyone's seen it, they'll, they'll know what I mean, but that's just one sort of powerhouse star that was just incredibly jarring to watch on screen. I didn't understand what the, the theory behind that was. Um, I've, I've, I've heard notions of that, 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 that sort of plot point is purgatory, but I didn't really find that in the film. I mean, I spoke last week off air to Carson about one sort of issue I had, and it's going to be interesting to hear Alina, Lena and Diego's as well. I mean, also to, to, to get Carson's opinion on it again, and I'll bring it up after a few other people have spoken. But for me, I mean, this is a strong sophomore effort that feels like a director debut. And ironically enough, I don't really think this is a film that is as engaging and as, as probably just, will probably be as discussed as as as, as um, Simetz thinks it's going to be, but overall, it's it's well it's well done. I mean, I'd like to see more of Simetz. Don't get me wrong, um, but to be honest, it's, I just felt like this was very very hollow. And the more I think about it, the more I'm just sort of more disengaged with it all. Jack and I are definitely in the same boat in the sense that we both feel like she dies tomorrow is very much a film that makes you feel like a an idiot. Uh, I watched this about two weeks ago. And I didn't understand it at all. And I don't like films where I feel the need to have to watch um, 
like a, a YouTube explained video to tell me what happened because I should just be able to get that from the film and I didn't with this. There are, there, it is like a beautifully crafted film. I really enjoyed the score, especially like the choir aspect of it. I found that to be really haunting. And then when the characters like spread the She Dies Tomorrow thing with all that like neon lighting, that's, that was also really cool. But I suppose we're like the only like, oh, and Christmas Mina, I love Christmas Mina. I, he was also really great in this and Birds of Prey. I often say that he should replace Chris Pratt on the Hollywood Chris list because he's just amazing. And he's in a superhero movie now too. So kick Chris Pratt off the list. Christmas Mina on it he's better by miles and miles and miles anyway so back to she dies tomorrow those are probably the only nice things I can say about it because I just didn't understand what was happening and I read some of the uh theories and whatever trying to explain it and I just it just I still doesn't make sense to me people are talking about this film in the sense that she dies tomorrow is like related to quarantine or it's related to like abuse or like mental illness and the characters are just so deadpan and annoying that I felt guilty like just not caring that they're like going through some like mental illness thing because like in real life if my friends were like hey I'm like really freaking out I think I'm gonna die tomorrow I'd be like oh shit man like what do you need me to do to help but in this movie, every time a character was like, oh, I'm going to die tomorrow, I was just shut up. I'm tired. I can't, I can't deal with this. It's so annoying. And I don't think that was like Amy's intention at all. I just, I, it just, it wasn't for me. And that's, that's, oh, I just, I don't, the more I talk about it, the more I don't like it. Not to sound like a broken record, but I'm very much so with you both, where I watched the film and it's a film that's very vague and very artistic. And the initial reaction is it seems like there's some substance here. And I've been thinking about the film for weeks since seeing it. I want to rewatch the film and not to invalidate anyone who doesn't like it. There, this With films like this, you absolutely can find depth for certain people. And if it speaks to you in that artistic way, more power to you. Um, I don't think this film is that good really in any form. Um, I think that it is a film that feels like it has substance when it really doesn't. It feels like the director and the screenwriter and the filmmakers wanted to have a story looking at the concept of life and oh like what do we do like if you the concept of if you die tomorrow opens the door for an interesting conversation on like what do we suffer with now just because we know that we have more days to go on that we you know put off because oh we can do it in the future or whatever. Um, but if you die tomorrow, then you, you know, you don't have that time. And there, there is a conversation there. There is substance in this film. Clearly he's trying to have this conversation, but it does through with a really, really bad catalyst. It feels, it just, it creates a very, very weak plot to have this overall conversation that doesn't make sense. And I found so, so frustrating how they expand the conversation and how they try to build the plot up. And then once you actually get to the conversation past just the narrative arc of how you get there, the conversation itself is just not that interesting. I hear everyone saying, oh, this is about quarantine. This is about this. This is about this and putting their own perspectives. But I think when you watch the film, it's very apparent that none of that really is in there. You can absolutely look and put whatever you want onto a film. But I think when you look at a film, it should at least be in there more clearly than it is at least in She Dies Tomorrow. I look at this film and just the more I think about it, the more empty it feels, the more just weak it feels. I will say though, as a director, 
I am hopeful considering this is a direct, uh, not directorial debut, but it's a very ambitious film. And I'd much rather have a film of ambition that tries to do something interesting, that tries to break down just going through the motions rather than a film like I'm sure we're going to talk about next made in Italy that is very just paint by numbers. Even though I think that film and we'll get there is generally better than this movie, I'm much more excited for the people behind this movie because it shows legitimate ambition. And I think that if it had a strong screenplay with something actually to say, I think it could have been something really special. Unfortunately, this just did not work for me. And I, you know, I will rewatch the film and maybe my opinions will drastically change. But on a first viewing with, you know, a couple weeks to think about it, I ended up just not finding too many redeeming qualities of substance within the film. Wow. I mean, I have so much to say to all three of you guys, because even though I agree with everything you guys have said, or most of what you guys have said, those are the reasons that I liked it. Because when I actually originally saw it, I was like, okay, it's, it's so-so, it's not that good. But then as I kept on thinking more and more about it, I liked it even more. And I, I'd say I'm confident to say right now that it's probably in my yearly top five as of now, just because of how much it has risen in my mind. Like, I agree with the fact that they do stre- stretch out the concept and the plot may be weak. But this may be because I do come at it from more of a directorial mindset, but just the way in which it's put together kind of makes up for that. And it feels like I said, it feels like Amy is going for that ambiguous nature and purposefully leaves out some key information to kind of make it more of a puzzle. Now, I don't know. It is very possible that they went the pretentious route and said, let's make a puzzle that we don't even know the answer to. But I don't get that from this film. I feel like they're trying to purposefully make a blank canvas for you to put your own interpretations on because that's what they want to do. Because honestly, films like this are the films, like you said, that people like this who are this ambitious, even with their second film, even though they may not be able to properly communicate their ideas to the extent that they want, are definitely someone who you need to pay attention to. Because obviously she is going to figure out how to properly express the ideas she wants. And once she does this, she may just become one of the best filmmakers of all time down the road. Like I definitely see shades of Kubrick here. I definitely see shades of Lynch here that down the road, I'm not saying this is the next 2001 A Space Odyssey, but I am saying that down the road, I am confident that she will become one of the best filmmakers of all time. Just the fact that she can take this from her second film and already wants it to be discussed and kind of analyzed in this way. Like I said, the themes are a little bit shaky. It is true that it's stretched out, but I just feel that that was her purpose. And if, like I said, if she figures out how to express that in a better way, this is going to be a whole nother world of film that comes from her. I, I've quite I've actually thinking more about what Carson just said and and and, and Lena agreeing with me. I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna probably slightly go a little bit deeper into this because I think this is a film that is the personification of what I think is wrong with independent cinema. Is the fact that because it goes existential and because it goes extremely evocative, then that's making up for character, and it's not. It's, this is not a character trait to look flashy. I mean, it's that meme of like I like Tim Impala. That's not a character. That's not a personality trait. Like don't don't like define yourself on one small little thing. And I think this is what, it, I think this is a film that does that um, uh, plentiful. I mean, 
I, I, I just often fail to see what the ambition is here. I mean, Carson, you mentioned it, but I don't think you has mentioned it in the same way that Diego did. And I just, I just and I, I, if you want to come back into this after Diego, feel free because I'm, I'm generally interested. Um, like yeah, I am definitely with, will. But, but the, the, the word ambition here, I, I find like a buzzword. I just don't see what the ambition is here. I think it's quite, if not, um, simplistic. And I think that's what I'm struggling with because I don't know if Alina would agree with me here, but I think actually, in fact, this film is very simplistic, but it does this evocative existential thing where it thinks it's a, bit, it's a bigger film and that there's something behind here and it makes you think that you're stupid by you're not getting it. Now, that may be my fault. That may be the film's fault. I'm not too sure yet. I've seen this, I think I've seen this once and to be honest, that was enough for me. But, but maybe that's my, my issue. That I need to go watch it again. However, this is the same issue that Richard Kelly had with Donnie Darko. They make a film, right? And then it really does work. There's something impressive. And then to follow that up is they have to make this, this, this really provocative, existential science fiction film that has so much more to say about the, the whole world and stuff like that. And they lose the grasp on character. And ultimately, you're just watching someone um, try and make a bigger point without actually making it within the film itself. And like Alina said, why? W- w- I think you might mention this off air, Alina, but I don't want to go watch a film and then have to read three books and a manual about Southland Tales. And everybody's like, that film is getting this this reappreciation of, of, oh, it's, it's, a, it's a cult classic now. It's not. It was shit back in 2007 or eight or six. And unfortunately, it's still shit now because it doesn't work on its own merits. And I think this is, Amy Sametz's film is far better than Southland Tales because I think even though this, ha- this is trying to say a bigger overall arc, the intimacy here is where it, where, where it really shines. And I think that, regardless of all that existential bullshit if you get to the actual point here with the film there's something incredibly well to work with and i think and i i, I, I we've spoke about this off air and i know we've we, we've we've had a, a discussion of it so i'm just going to bring this up now so because I, I don't want to make people like anyone else feel uncomfortable but this film quite clearly has something to say about um amy simitz's personal life with her, with her ex-boyfriend or I believe ex-husband. Uh, I'm not going to say his name because he's, he's generally what's come out and his actions on Twitter. He's a piece of shit. And I don't think he deserves his name being mentioned um, for, for a, a long time to come. But casting a, a character who, who looks very much like you, calling it Ama, and then having these characters have an existential crisis of, 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 of something happening to them. We don't know what, but something happens to them. And then from that moment on, they, 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 they have this transfixation of, I should they're going to die tomorrow now if you put that as an allegory towards um victims of domestic violence i think this is where the film fits now you can anyone can have their opinion but for me that fits the most i'm not particularly happy with that because i think i don't i just i just don't want this film to be fined for 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 amy's career to be a film about that prick and it's so this film is so much more potential than that so so i'm slightly even um, brutal towards myself or even bringing it up, but I think it's it's one of those things you 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 can't you can't avoid it. Now, I think that's where the the, the film works works its best by very similar for um, for Ben Affleck's finding the way back. It's sort of this um, cathartic um, way of going through cinema and exploring the issues you've had and and finding peace with it. And if anything happens or has happened with this film, I think Simitz can, can walk away from this and know 
that this was was good healing for her and i think the way this has been um treated with within the last few weeks in a really positive light um it is 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 a very very positive thing for uh, for the director my my issue is like i said is that if the film ultimately undercuts itself because like i said before it, it has that theme it wants to talk about that and again i think Simex is, is never on the nose with it. It's very su- subtle and, it, and it's got a very nice nuance to it. However, I think by elevating it to, to a degree, it doesn't need to. I think it undercuts the really, 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 really poignant, compelling notion of character. And that's why I find it difficult to sort of hear this theme of it's ambitious. I don't really think this is ambitious. I think this has been done a, a lot in this type of film. I've just said Ben Affleck did it with Gavin O'Connor. I mean, I mean, Gavin O'Connor's not really a director of nuance or subtlety, is it? I mean, I, I mean, uh, the comparisons of the, the theme, the tone, it's not all that new. And yes, I think there's this, this subversion of, of adding a science fiction element to it. And again, it, yes, it works. But for me, it's a slightly too much. Um, I think this could have worked far better. And I'm not telling the director how to do a job at all. I just think that this has shades of horror in it. And the shades of horror far outweigh the shades of science fiction. And I think that should have been its home. Um, very much like Lynch, I think Lynch has got, I think each film Lynch makes is a horror film at heart, just with science, science fiction elements. So, yeah, I do think that the story alone is thin and very simplistic. And that was originally one of the negatives of the film for me. But much like I said in my review, the fact that, like you said, you, you think it was too elevated or she tried to elevate it too much or make it too big. In my just to, opinion, clar- just to clarify though, Diego, I, I don't yeah. think I, I think that. I think we live in a world now where the independent market is so saturated. And if you don't have a film that has a second wind or a third wind, I think people disregard it as being one note. And I think, I, I don't think it's um, Sametz's fault. I think it's overall the, the genre uh, whole, especially what's happening now. More than ever, you need a film that stands on, on its two, le- uh, on more than one leg. And I just think that, it's slightly overpowering with that that other element that's all oh okay that in my opinion is still what shows that she is ambitious because like i said there are many many other films in quarantine right now that could have gone that route but they didn't and just the fact that she at least tried to attempt that now i do agree that maybe there are ways in which it wasn't fully successful but the fact that she tried to attempt that and go to those lengths does say a lot about her. And yeah, the story may be simplistic and kind of hard to figure out, but the fact that you say that it makes you feel dumb, in my opinion, that's a great quality for a film because I always, I feel like if a film just kind of makes you feel smart, kind of like, let's say, Nolan's Inception, that's another favorite of mine, but I do have to agree that it makes you feel smart, even though, like I say, you don't have to think much in it. However, the fact that this film invites that discussion and wants to make you read a million books about it to fully understand it. Yeah, I understand that you may not like that, but just look at like Lynch's work, like even Mulholland Drive, almost no one knew what that was about. And I believe in the DVD edition, he even had to include a little booklet that gave 10 clues to how to figure out what the story was about. And it was only around after that where people truly started figuring out the plot and videos were made, theories were like posted on forums, and that film was able to invite that discussion. It was pretty much right after it got released that it kind of started having that discussion. It wasn't like a 10-year thing, like Southland Tales. I haven't seen that one personally, so I couldn't tell you much about it, 
but at least with Mulholland Drive, I feel like that discussion did elevate the film even further. And the fact that that film wasn't a film that just explained everything to you and that the last 30 minutes were like, what the fuck is going on? And you, I, don't, I doubt anyone really understood it from the first viewing. It wasn't until that discussion was had that people kind of saw that brilliance. Now, you guys may be right in the fact that she's just trying to push buttons and try to have a discussion without there really being any meaning. But I feel that her next work is going to show if she's more like Lynch or if she's more just trying to have a discussion without anything to truly discuss. Well, just before Carson jumps back in, let, let's just deconstruct that then. So let's start with Mulligan Drive. Because with the context of that film, you're talking about a master of his craft with Lynch. So I think it's, it's slightly an unfair comparison, but let's go with it. Mulligan Drive was at one point David, David Lynch's follow-up television series. It was going to be an eight-part television show, and he cancelled it, and he made it into a film. So I think... I, I think you, you can argue, argue the toss about if that film, depending on how a viewer wants to sort of process that, I think at its core, I don't think it even works as a film, to be honest, because it's so manifested in about nine different properties. I think it's quite lucky that it came together. So regarding about like having to write 10 points of Mulligan Drive, I think that's Lynch um, indulging in, in, in a factor that what something doesn't make sense regardless. So I think that that's a slight false equivalence. But the, the Nolan Inception thing is interesting because I think this is going to go down a rabbit hole, but just indulge me. The whole issue with Nolan, and, and, and I'm trying not to sort of be, be disrespectful to people who like his, his films, is that Nolan will tell you in the film exactly what's going to happen, how it will happen, and the result of it. But then he will overshadow that with an excessiveness through if that's a set piece, if that's through... Um, his aesthetic, that's the storytelling. In Inception, there's a, there's a film, there's like, he has a, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Cobb, has a, a conversation with Ellen Page's character. And they quite specifically state that you can always tell um, it's a dream because you wake up. You literally wake up and then, you, then, then no, when you're not in a dream, you wake up and then you, then you have your, your little arc. In each preceding dream, each character just happens to be there and you don't wake up. Now, there's also the conversation about the wedding ring, and there's also the conversation about the totem falling. But towards the end of the film, Leonardo DiCaprio's character wakes up on the airplane. So ultimately, Christopher Nolan tells you how it's going to end, with the whole interstellar thing, like, like, it's always foreshadowing, but it's so brutally obvious in those films about, you know, there's a ghost in my bookshelf. Well, I might not be the most brightest person in the world. I don't have, a, I have an MA, I don't have a PhD, but even me, I can tell that that's going to be something that, com that comes again. So to me, I think Nolan gets a far bigger credit of narrative and, and genre than he, than he probably deserves. Lynch, I think Lynch just creates chaos out of chaos and on all, all power to him. But I think the thing with, with, with this film, getting back to the point is, I don't, I don't think this is in any way comparable. And I, 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 if you would want to disagree, I think that's perfectly fine. But I think to compare this to, to Lynch, which I, I must admit I did, but I think it's Lynch-like, I, I think that Simetz is on a very different wavelength to that. And I think maybe that I, I'm particularly being a bit too harsh to it because I think I want to like this far more than I do. And I think it's an issue I have internally because I quite like this director. I think what she does here and how she turns in her own issues uh, psychologically and, 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 and she... she, she identifies that and then puts it through the, the, the language of cinema. I think it's quite impressive. And I like that catharsis about that. Um, 
my issue is I think it's just slightly too over excessive in its indulgent of genre. But nonetheless, this is something I'll come back to is that I think all four of us will, will, will come back to the third outing. And I don't want to speak on, on Carson's behalf or on Alina's, but I feel that this is a director that, that does show promise, but promise is very different to ambition for me. And I think I would undoubtedly agree that this does show promise. And I think um, Simet's probably shows promise throughout her, for her career, but ambition is most definitely in a buzzword. I just don't see how it, how it makes an, a, an ambitious statement about how it executes genre, storytelling, or themes. Um, but I think, I, I think well, I, I think themes, I think it's probably its most ambitious, but I think, I don't think that's even ambitious. I think it's just generally good at that. If something's ambitious, I think it's sort of a caveat by saying, well, you know, it was good um, and it was ambitious because I think it's, it's, a, it's a word that, that that easily sort of explores the fact that it was interesting and it was crazy, but it didn't quite work. I think that's where I see ambition as being, and that's my definition. So I don't want to put anyone's words, uh, anyone uh, words in anyone's mouth. But I think that I don't think the ambition of storytelling. I don't. Sorry, I don't think the storytelling is ambitious. I think it's generally quite good, regardless. I think it's very, very, very strong. I know I've gone around all the houses there, but um, I think that. This is a film that's very promising. Simex is very promising, but I, I think this is a film that doesn't showcase ambition. I think generally it's, it's quite well executed regardless. See, I disagree. And I think maybe this is just where we're going to differ is because like you both, you and Alina both mentioned like the frustration of feeling stupid after because you like didn't understand the film, right? For me, it felt frustrating because I felt that way. But then I read those pieces and I just came to the conclusion that it feels overall empty. And I guess if you do see something in there, like, yes, valid, you know, everyone has their own opinion. But this is a film that makes it feel like it's saying something deeper. And the frustrating part is the fact that I do understand it. I, or at least I feel like I understand it. The more critical thought I put into it, I don't get this, oh, uh, groundbreaking, you know, breakthrough or anything. I just get exactly what I thought I was getting when I first watched it and not having that level of depth I found very very frustrating and I think it's another element mentioning you know comparing this to Mulholland Drive and all these other you know films those are films with legitimate depth to have conversations around I go back to also Mother Darren Aronofsky's film that is a film that I thought about for days and I don't mind vague films that give you something to think about but in that process of thinking I feel like there needs to be a substance to actually have breakthroughs in your thought and you actually should be able to come to interesting conclusions that is something that at least I couldn't do with She Dies Tomorrow. This is a film that, again, for me, feels extremely empty when you really break it down, which makes the conversation frustrating and unrewarding. Carson, I know you just mentioned that it feels empty. Do you think that's a, a purposeful statement by Simetz or not? Do you think that's what you're coming away from? Or do you think that's a conscious decision from a director? I don't think it's conscious. I just think it's like, I think that it is... I think she thought in the screenwriters or, you know, the filmmakers, I think they thought that there was more depth to be found in the conversation that they were trying to create. I don't think it was conscious. I thought they thought that this would be a legitimate like film of emotional catharsis and that they would find something deep just naturally within the story. I think that, I think that's also very just clear with the style and just, this is a film that acts and thinks that it has a lot of depth to it, but at least for me, it wasn't there. So no, I don't think it's intentional. I think they just didn't quite know what they were, putting on screen if that makes sense i think they thought that this was something deep when it just wasn't at least for me so yeah so i think we have kind of the same 
views in terms of like how we're approaching the film. I think just our major difference is that you're kind of going the cynical take where she didn't really have much to think about it or she didn't really have much meaning behind it. And I, I'm going more on like the optimistic side where she, it was thoroughly planned out and she did have a meaning behind everything going on. Now, like I said, I do feel that we're going to kind of be able to find a conclusion to that argument once she starts making more films and we see if she turns out to, yeah, have much more meaning and be able to express it clearly, or if she kind of just devolves into something where it just gets more and more convoluted. So I do feel that kind of the end of that discussion will kind of be reached once her next couple of films are out. But about the ambition, what I define ambition as is more in terms of like how far they try to reach whether or not they can be successful it could be you can be ambitious and not succeed and you can be ambitious and succeed i think that they were really ambitious and succeeded but i do know that and i do acknowledge that a lot of people are going to come away thinking that it was not a success to be clear diego and i think this is just like a point where like we fundamentally disagree with the film i think you mentioned like oh we're coming at this with the same place i just don't think we do i think you find depth which is completely fine i'm not saying like you're wrong or anything right i think you see depth in the screenplay in the film where i just don't i don't think it's a point of oh this filmmaker is going to prove me wrong in the future she could come out with 30 amazing groundbreaking wow incredibly deep films but i'm still going to look back at this film and you know I've not rewatched the film, so to be completely fair, I, it could change on a rewatch. But if it's still the same experience I had with it this first time, I'm still going to say, oh, that film feels empty. It's not a fact of, oh, this filmmaker, um, I don't think is like trying. I just don't think that this is a film that has a depth to it. But again, you see the depth in the film. So we just, it's not so much of, oh, we are like, I'm taking a cynical route, you're taking an optimistic route. I just think we fundamentally disagree where I think this film is empty and not that good. I think you see it as something of worth and substance. Um, and it's just going to come down to every audience member is different with where they fall on that. But it's not so much the filmmaker proving me wrong um, and proving that she can say depth. I just don't think she's saying anything of depth here. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to fight back there as well. Um, it's, it's interesting because I think me and Carson slightly um, disagree on something. And then agree on certain things and then the same thing with me and you Diego I think I, I, I'll take the stance of being um, cynical I've got no problem with that but the thing is I don't think this is a film without meaning as I just said I think that's quite the opposite the film itself is is full to the brim of meaning and it's full of thematic weight and self-referential cathartic weight from from uh, Simon's undoubtedly I think the way I see it like that and like I said beforehand my, my, my topic on that sorry, my thoughts on that topic is I'm slightly a little bit muddled on it um if if it's even appropriate and and again if, if Simon ever came out and said perhaps that's what it is does that then take away from um the film speaking for itself um if she's having to sort of talk about it so i understand from that point of view i don't want the film to ex, ex to quite literally express itself my issue is that i'm still failing to sort of acknowledge the fact of what the ambition is here because ultimately it's quite straightforward forward cheaply crafted film and again nothing wrong with being cheap nothing wrong with being simplistic it's two elements that really really help the independent market my issue is that I've, i'm sort of no one's sort of failed to explain what the ambition is because um again you can have ambition and you can have um promise and i think undoubtedly this falls on the latter but with the with the former i'm seeing sort of no elements of of of, of what could um concur with that because if you see the filmmaking prowess 
Simex uses like an interesting element of lights and lighting in the film. Um, but is is that is that ambitious? For me, not not really. I mean, the storytelling is quite linear. Is that ambitious? Not really. Um, is that it doesn't say anything and it's so overtly covert? Is that an ambition? For me, not really. Um, and I and I don't think I'm again when I'm when I'm walking away from this, I don't feel I don't feel dumb. I think the film makes you feel stupid for not acknowledging the fact that it, what what it may be about. I mean, there's there's nothing really here um, on the surface that 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 would in, infer any sort of uh, thought process. Like I just said about Nolan, th- those twists don't come off a mile away. He, he does quite literally mention in the film for his foreshadowing. Now here, there's nothing like that. So just just on a craftsman craftsmanship of storytelling, it slightly sort of it fails to, to explore uh, for a casual audience. Uh, to be engulfed by it because otherwise if you're having to go online and like Alina said and this is where I think me and Alina would agree is that having to go online and find that fan theory or that theory to me is slightly um, the antithesis of what makes a good film if if I leave the film within itself having a great uh, talking point then I, it's done its job if I'm having going to online because I think the film's so scarce of a bit of probably being afraid to maybe mention something and again, this fan theory I'm mentioning about the, the ex-husband um, is, is only put together because of, of, of Amy, the, the, the character. That's not even uh, set in stone. So again, that's just a theoretical approach to it. But uh, again, like this, this word ambition keeps on propping up and I'm just failing to see where in, if in itself is itself ambitious. I think that there's two like ways you can judge, well, and like two levels of ambition that you can look at this compared to normal indie films or compared to just films in general. Cause I agree. This is not really that ambitious for the indie scene right now. This is a very common trait having very convoluted um, and vague plots where it seems like there's something going on and there's a lot of tension, but you don't really know, but compared to general film, having a story, whether or not that story is of worth and going about it in the way that this film goes about, you know, exploring that story, not explaining a lot, um, you know, using a lot of really vague elements. Like it is, I think it is a bold and ambitious choice, though I disagree that like, I think that ambition translate to, I, I wouldn't even say promise actually, because I guess I disagree that like, I don't think this film succeeds with really anything. So I don't know if they show promise. It shows the ambition to where I feel like there could be promise. And I'm excited to see the future works of everyone really involved in this film, whether you're talking about acting, visuals, directing, screenwriting, because I think that ambition is exciting to see. But I wouldn't say anything in the film gives me you know, like excitement as if like, oh, this shows a lot of promise and I because I don't think it succeeds. Um, so I guess in that sense, I see the ambition as, on, for a very early future, trying to tell a story in this matter and having the confidence to do that, I think is ambitious, at least in my opinion, when you look at film in general, not necessarily just with indie films. Um, but I would say that I also don't see a lot of necessarily, I would say promise. I'd see the room for pr- promise. I think that this opens the door to something really exciting, but it doesn't actually take that step with this feature specifically. So actually going back to what Jack said about the film being linear, That's something that I actually did not get from this film. Now, I did watch it about a week ago, but there were certain aspects of it where I thought, like there was something about the date when they're in the cabin and they talk about the date for a little bit, November 25th, I believe. And that kind of made me think about it a bit. And I'm not sure if maybe that 
it felt like that portion of the film maybe belonged somewhere else in the story. Like in terms of the fact that I don't really think the film was linear itself, but like I said, I'm not sure, but just the fact that it leaves me with that sort of confusion. Yeah. It's going to turn people off, but just personally to me, I like that. And the fact, and I know you guys are saying ambitious and promise are different things, but in my opinion, being ambitious does lead to a lot of promise because it shows that you're just going to keep on trying to reach above what you're expected to do. And hopefully if she keeps on going like that, she's going to become, like I said, the next great filmmaker of our time. Not now, but eventually. Well, let's just fire back on that one as well, Diego. Um, so let, let, let's talk about just for a second, like the, the, the linear thing. And you, you talk about it, you know, with the, uh, you, your approaches that you, you felt it was quite non-linear. My issue with that is that does that actually elevate the, fi- the film whatsoever? Because in my eyes, it doesn't. Again, it's, it's the issue with Southland Tales against Donnie Darko. And again, let's just focus on Donnie Darko, actually. You have this, the, the, uh, the, you know, the theatrical cut and the other director's cut by Richard Keller. Those two films, the basis is exactly the same. You get from A to B to C the exact same way. But what direct, the director's cut is that it overindulges in its own um, world, its own ideology, to the point where it suffocates itself because it wants to, it wants to sort of create this world um, that's not only not very interesting, but it's so p- far removed from the actual, the reason why you're watching the film in itself, watching this Jake Gyllenhaal's character sort of go down this, this path. Um, it just becomes slightly over, over um, indulgent and redundant. And I think you can find that in a lot of films where that's probably a reason why you don't have director's cut because you'd have, uh, you know, a fucking five hour cut of Alien Covenant and we don't really need to see it. And I think this is one of the prime examples of a film, especially within the independent market, where it overindulges in excessiveness when I think being simplistic at its core, even having the, the lighting, even having stuff like that, is undoubtedly it would make it a better film. You don't have to have excessiveness uh, to, to make yourself interesting. You know, if you're going to like, if you're going to buy a car and you buy, um, um, I don't know, like a, like a, a small, cheap, compact car for like $1,000. And then you go buy a Ferrari for 180. It doesn't make you have a personality trait. It doesn't make you, have in, it doesn't make you interesting. A car gets you from A to B. It's, it's, it's literally, that's all it is. And this film is a prime example of trying to be a Ferrari when you can easily just be a compact uh, $1,000 car. I mean, it's just sort of over-excessiveness to sort of make yourself stand out. And I don't think this film needs it. Maybe if this was a $200 million budget, maybe then yes. But, but within itself, it's, it's got all the sort of parameters to make an interesting film. I mean, Simetz has got a fan base. I mean, she's in a whole host of films. She's in Pet Cemetery. She's, she's a, a horror scream queen. So why do they overly have to, like, why do they overly have to uh, indulge in this genre and this filmmaking ability when, at the end of the day, the simplistic nature of it and what I've said before about the... Uh, the, the, the theory between herself and her own personal life is far more compelling and poignant than anything else. Yeah, I think then that is where you and I fundamentally disagree because those same things that you find kind of like indulgent is like, I, I do acknowledge that they are indulgent, but in my opinion, that is exactly what makes it, makes it seem like at least she's trying to be ambitious or trying to elevate the film. Yes, it might not be the best fit, but the fact that with such a simplistic story, she at least tries to make it kind of something groundbreaking and new. That's what I'm talking about in regards to the ambition, that she tries to take something incredibly simple 
and tries to change it into something much more complex. Now, like I said, in what way though? In terms of the fact, like I said, the lighting and things like that, they might not be directly ambitious to the film itself, but also another disagreement I think we have is in terms of like, how should the film stand on its own? I feel like it contributes more to the eventual discussion than the film itself. And in my mind, that still counts as something that's a positive for the film. But I do understand that you guys may think that the discussion of, of a film outside of the film might not necessarily be a positive and would rather be a negative. Same goes with the nonlinear thing. I do feel that it adds more to the discussion than the actual film. But And I like that, but I understand that many won't. Yeah, I mean, I think this might be a personality thing because I think you're very, very warm to Nolan and I'm, I'm very, very cold because I think his, his excessiveness within genre ultimately undercuts the whole point of his narratives. And, and I think yeah. the, the films that people don't particularly like of his, of his creed, um, I do. And I think it's simplistic. It's always going to be better than making something extravagant and then just throwing out there and hoping you like it. Because I mean, simplistic is not easy to do. It's really not. I mean, you look at all the films that, that, that have this sort of prowess where, you know, there's so much like um, buzz going on and you watch it. I mean, the prime example of, is, is Alex Kirkman's The Mummy. How can you fuck that up? How can you fuck that? Brendan Fraser didn't, didn't manage to fuck that up, you know? And, and you just think the fact of, if, if, the, if the mummy is, is a, an, an icon of cinema, the character within the actual story itself, and, and, and that is a, is a film that repeatedly gets remade and they can't simplify it to the point of the Boris Karloff films. It's quite clear that simplicity is not easy. And I think the, the reason why the likes of Dunkirk the likes of Insomnia, Memento especially, and Following um, are stronger films. More so, the Prestige is so much until it's third act, and I think it just goes way over, over the line with what it does to Hugh Jackman's character, and then reins it back in with Bale's character. But I think his excess, excessiveness within the action-adventure genre, to me, makes his whole ideology redundant because ultimately we're undercutting what we're going there to see. If I want to go, and it's again, it's interesting we bring this up because it's the whole Scorsese thing. If I want to go, right, and have sprinkles thrown in my eyes for two hours, I'll go do that. That's why I don't want to go watch something like an MCU movie at this point forward. Because if I wanted that, I'd just go home and throw, um, you know, um, like I said, sprinkles in my eyes and be like, oh my God, this is amazing. And it's the issue that Speed Racer has, because ultimately Wachowski is going from something like the Matrix trilogy to Speed Racer. I mean, contextually, it's a palate cleanser, so you've got to take in consideration. But it's a film that over excessively indulges in filmmaking prowess rather than the story itself, which is so simplistic, it's unbelievable. Now, if that's a caveat because you don't think the, the, the story's in its simplicity, it can convey what you want to convey and it doesn't elevate the material people overindulge. And I think that's a personality trait that a lot of people do because they're not as confident with the material at hand. Now, the reason why I would say that is because if you look at Nolan throughout his filmography, the man cannot write a third act to save his life. The, the Dark Knight Rises is one of the most promising yet underwhelming features to have a trilogy ender because throughout the whole film, like you, you're watching Joey King's um, Talia Al Ghul and you think it's Bane and it's like, and then you find out it's Talia Ghul all along. It's like, is there not something more you could have done to elevate that material? I mean, you look at Dunkirk with the twist there, with its time, it's like, it doesn't add anything. 
and it's just excessive bullshit for me. And I think here, the the reason why I'm slightly, like I said, I'm 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 really I'm disappointed. And and again, I'm, I think this is a strong film. Don't get me wrong. It's just the fact that it just overindulges in in this sort of ideology of having to have excessiveness to it to make it stand out, and it doesn't need that whatsoever. And I think Nolan is a massive issue regarding that. And I think Danny Villeneuve is going to have a very similar um, feeling towards before sooner or later. And I think. Blade Runner was one film that, that almost caught him out. And I think with Dune, we'll see something else. But throughout with Sicario, with Prisoners, with Enemet, you have, you have an interesting aesthetic, an interesting narrative. But ultimately, it's the characters that drive those films. And with Blade Runner, ultimately, it's, it's a property that you have to indulge in its aesthetic and you have to indulge in that excessiveness because it's Blade Runner. But it's an issue that just overrides the overall film because you can write the narrative in two paragraphs. Now, in a Blade Runner film, I just don't think that's good enough. And I think in a Nolan film, it's not good enough. And here, I think Simex is probably more conscious in the fact that she wants this film to stand out rather than it being known for probably what it should be. And it's an allegory for domestic violence. If that's in fact what she wanted to, if, if she's trying to convey that in a film consciously or not. So that's where I come to it. That's why I, I, I just, I can't really be, I can't really see why the excessiveness is here. I don't think it elevates the material whatsoever. Yeah, I think this also points to kind of a discussion of how bad or like how, it, how important over-direction is. Because I do know that Waves, the film, I think by Trey Edward Schultz, that came out about almost, oh, close, it's starting to be close to a year ago kind of had those same criticisms that I actually enjoyed where it was that it was a little bit too over-directed for what the story was. That was one of my favorite parts of the entire film, just how kind of directed it was and how it was there. And honestly, same goes with like a lot of Sam Esmail's work. And I just feel that that's just because I'm coming at it from more of a kind of a director's mindset, kind of a more technical mindset. And I do have to admit that I may not be as character driven in terms of like my personal preferences. Like, yeah, when I'm reviewing something, I definitely acknowledge it. But regarding my personal preferences, I give more importance to kind of the directing and the technical sides of it than the characters. But I, like I said, I just feel that's more of a personal preference, but that is definitely something that we do disagree on. I mean, just bring it back though to She Dies Tomorrow. Like, is the directing even re- like the comp like the shot composition, the cinematography? Like it's impressive, but is it really anything like groundbreaking? Even like Mother, like going back to Mother, like that had the whole staircase sequence, which was you know, uh, you know, very unique, very specific, very important. In this movie, it all just feels very. Uh, Jack, you kind of mentioned it with the current scene of the indie genre. You know, it feels very just average in my opinion. Like it just feels like it's not necessarily going through the motions. That's definitely the wrong statement with this film, but it's. Just just doing what a ton of other features of this time are doing, right? Like, I don't think even like when you look at Nolan, right? Like every single one of his films recently, at least has been like a directorial effort that's clearly been impressive and him playing with IMAX cameras, him playing around with, you know, a scale. It's all been very impressive and stand out in my opinion, whether or not you like the films or not. I think it with She Dies Tomorrow, it's just not that impressive. It's not that revolutionary. Um, and where I, you know, I don't hold that against the film necessarily, and it's dumb to hold it, you know, oh, the film's not revolutionary. Most films are not. But I think saying like, 
oh, that is like one of the major great points of it. Eh, it's not really too impressive to where I would say that is one of the major things like, wow, the film blew me away with these aspects when it's just kind of doing what other films of this time are doing, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, Catherine, I agree with you. It's all surface level. And, and you can have a pretty house and you can have a pretty car. But if you don't have an engine in the car, you don't get very far, do you? And if you have a, you have a pretty house and nothing works in it, you've just got bl- uh, bricks and mortar. And at the end of the day, I think, I think this, this is a film that is, ironically enough, built from in the inside out. And you have great characters. You have a great plot. There's a narrative here where I was engaged, but it's that excessive nature of wanting to stand out to the point of where, again, it undercuts everything. And I think that might be a maturity thing. That might be something that is uh, added because, again, like we said, Cass, in the independent market, nothing at this range now is revolutionary. So you need something visually to stand out. But this film, again, talking about it, reminds me of Ryan Gosling's The Lost River, is that it's very similar where that film is built from the outside in. And the point, and it's almost like a pyramid. So if you build from the bottom up, you know, you, you, you gets to a point where it gets a, a tip at the end. And that's where you get your excessive um, aesthetic. And it's very small, but the more, more you go down the pyramid, it's built up and it's, it's larger in mass. The Lost River is built from the, t- the, the top down with regarding character. It's just nothing there. This is, like I said, the opposite. It does have that basis of something so, so interesting. But ultimately, they haven't built a pyramid. They've built a fucking um, a high rise. And it's just this ugly high rise. And it, at the bottom, you know, you've got all this wonderful tapestry. And then they, as, as it rises up, you, they're, they're trying to build, you know, an excessive amount of quality. And it just doesn't really add anything to the overall um, aesthetic and all um, building. And as much as that analogy is ridiculous, I think I'm quite married in the fact that I just think that whatever comes next needs to learn from this. And unfortunately, if you're going into a room and you're trying to sell yourself and you're trying to convince yourself that, you're, that you've got something that anyone else doesn't have, I think it's a tricky game because often than not, you can convince yourself on it and you can live by those rules. And ultimately, you're living on a lie. And I think this film would have been far better with its bottom line conversation and its bottom line characters. Um, and again, I'm going to come back to it repeatedly, but it is just so excessively um, conscious of its aesthetic. It almost feels like it's self-conscious. And I mean, again, like we said, Carson, not being revolutionary, difficult to stand out. You've got to have something. And maybe that's what this is making up for. And maybe from, from the 80% of people who watch this will find that impressive. But for me, I think there's a really strong filmmaker and Amy Simons. And I think there's a really interesting conversation to be had with this film. And I just think that it's going to be overindulged with an excessive um, one perfect shot Twitter um, monologue where it's, well, look at this. There's reds and blues and colour. And I'm just thinking, if that's what you're coming away from, I think it's, I don't want to say anything here disrespectful, but I think that's a disservice to the film. So after all this discussion, I do feel like I'm going to have to go back and rewatch the film because as I said, I've been confused about it ever since I've watched it and I'm kind of going, leaning towards one side, but I do have to admit that a lot of the things that you guys have said, I do agree with. It's just that they don't, they aren't as important to me as they are to you guys. But I do think I am going to have to rewatch it and kind of reevaluate 
what I see is important in the film because I do feel like honestly this is a film that one day I can watch it and I'll give it a 10 and the next day I'll watch it and I'll give it a half star like in my original review in fact I did even say that this film could get anywhere from like a 2 out of 10 to a 10 out of 10 and it would be totally justified like it's just one of those tricky films like that I hate to do this but I'm gonna have to fire back um, uh, <laughs> I just think that's again I think that's an interesting point that you've got and I'm going to end here because otherwise this will go on forever but I think that's a very interesting point that because if you're looking at a film and it's such a broad spectrum of of negativity and positivity I wonder what I wonder what the, the, the consensus is going to be on this because I, I think believe it or not I know we've disagreed in this but I, I appreciate everything you said um, regardless Diego I find that the most interesting thing about this film is that the consensus, it's going to be swayed and it's going to be very interesting. I think it's going to be very similar to Mother and this new wave of horror. And I've mentioned this before on this podcast where it's so difficult to sort of advertise and sell that it just goes for an excessive nature. Now, I think Mother is a different conversation entirely, but it's an interesting point to make because it does have um, comparisons within its within its sort of commitment to plot and excessive nature of conviction. Here, it's going to be very interesting to see what this this will do because this will either be turned up by the film Twitter crew and devoured, and I think that's already happening, but it's also happening because of other reasons. And I think I think we've got to bear in mind that this is a film directed by, by a woman in film, which is becoming a very rare, rare sight. And this is not only a director debut, this is a sophomore effort, and I think all power to Amy Simetz. I think this is most definitely, I said, a promising film. I just think that it's possibly, it's, I think, again, I'm going to always caveat by going back to Carson because it's a matter of reason. But um, Carson said that, you know, whatever Simetz does, people are always going to go back to this in one way or another. And I think that this is either going to be a learning point to, to, to sort of look at what people like and at the moment, we like visuals. I mean, like I said, we're in the theme park. Everything's brightly lit. Everything's colourful, and everything. Everyone's screaming and, and, and laughing, and and you know, and loving it. It's only until when you get on the rides, and the same thing happens, is you have that moment of adrenaline. But you have that on everything. You can have that on the teacups, and you can have that on the on the the one that's like eighteen um, foot in the air, eighteen hundred foot in the air. I just think the same issue you're going to have. But if you're getting the same. I think, <laughs> I think if you're going to get the same commitment from the teacups and then the um, 1,800-foot roller coaster, that's then the point of perspective. Now, if they both do the same thing, everyone's going to go for the, for, the, for the bigger roller coaster because it's just excessively long and excessively, um, you know, well, it's excessively excessive. But for me, again, it's just a point of personality thing. And I think it's just a trait of what you like and what you don't like. And I think if you like this, more power to you but I think it's going to be interesting where Simex goes from here because I think she can either follow this up with a very similar aesthetic and go down that road and alienate an audience but ultimately come away with a stronger one in a sort of an oxymoronic relationship but I think that I'd like to see Simon's do something comparable to the Elephant Man and the Straight Story. Comparing with the Lynch is, an, is a good comparison. I think she's made her Elephant. Uh, she's made sorry, a, a, um, a Razorhead, and I think 
she can either go the way of doing the straight story or the or the elephant man and making making something which has got her personality trait in it with her voice but nothing so excessive so we can see that character and we can see that story i'll say this again i don't particularly like the bloke but i'll say this out loud i think that if you look at tarantino overall his best film is jackie brown because it gets rid of the excess bullshit and the ego and it gets to the story and it gets to showcase what an excellent director and what an excellent writer he actually is. And I think this is a crossroads for Simex and unfortunately it's come at a sophomore effort, but if you don't hit that, that wall before long, you never hit it and you're just going through the, the motion. So I'll be interested to see where she goes next from this, but I think that'll be a very interesting sort of dilemma for her career-wise. See, the first reaction I had with the film when it ended was, oh, film Twitter is going to love this. And I think so far the reaction I've seen online has generally favored that. And I've been thinking a lot about like, why am I so cold on the film? And not at all to be like, oh, I'm on a pedestal and everyone else, you know, is lower or anything like that. But I think there is just a ton in the indie genre and like this film and covering Fantasia Fest as press, I can't say anything specific about those films, definitely didn't help in between the period of recording this podcast and watching this film. I'll just say to those who really were captivated by this film, there are so many films out there with a similar style, with a similar directing style that I feel like you should go check out. And I would just like, if you are captivated by this and you think this is amazing, good for you. I'm not saying that you're wrong or you're going to change that opinion. I would just say to explore that, understand that there is a larger field here like this. And I would encourage the people to go out and find those films. Because even from just Fantasia Fest, there's been multiple that have a very similar directing style and a very similar tone that have just, in my opinion, at least had more substance to them. I and mean, I think that's one of the reasons why I've just been more cold on this film compared to a lot of others. Could not agree more. Could not echo that statement anymore, Carson. I think that... For, for, and this is going to sound so nasty and, and really rude, but I hope no one finds this, takes the wrong way. I think this is all about what you have in your bubble. And I think if you don't watch anything um, like this on a daily, daily thing, and you, you just like the same, same stuff and you just watch the same stuff, ultimately this will, you won't have any issue with this because it doesn't do anything different. And you, you have that um, mirroring approach where you know you're going to like it. I think anyone who sort of steps out of that bubble and then goes to watch um, East Asia films or, or goes, to, goes to watch um, European film and, go, and goes to watch, and, and again, South American films, I don't think that this is highly creditable compared to those things. I mean, I've seen stuff from Berlin Alley like this. I've seen stuff, and we've just seen stuff from, uh, from Fantasia that we're currently uh, doing now. Um, myself, Alina, and Carson, in fact. Um, and you have this sort of wonderful approach from watching these, these existential films with this um, twist of, 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 of excessive but also restrained nature with its prowess of filmmaking to stand out. Because ultimately at a film festival, you need that. You need that higher end, well, this is this, this is this, this is this. Because you, you need to sell the film. That's what people are there for. You're selling your film to the critics. And I think within that circle, if you're so in that bubble, I think you're going to lose a lot out on it. And yes, you'll have a bubble of 10 or so great films that you can always go for and you want to find stuff very similar. But ultimately, if you're stuck in that bubble you, and you can't escape, you'll never sort of witness that there's very similar films to that that are done far better just from, with a different language. And I think, I think you're right, Carson. And I think I, I couldn't probably echo that even more. What one in particular, and I, and, and the name the name escapes me, but I think it's Sanzuru. 
the film, it's got like this, uh, it's set in America. I, I don't even want to talk about it, to be honest, because Fantasia have helped us out a lot. And, and I'm, I'm, I really want to be protective of what, what this is. But that it is a film that is very, very similar to this. But because it has such a diverse voice and the ex- existential filmmaking is restrained, it's so much more effective and so much more poignant and captivating than in fact this is. But it's weird because you put these two together and they're not, they're not, they're not so different. That they're from the same branch, you know. So it, it's it's most definitely something that I think it's widening of palette. But that's not to say that if you like this and you want to sort of have a smaller eye for stuff, that's not a problem. I just think in a broader broader spectrum, I think this is not the most ambitious thing you could probably have seen this year. In fact, probably this month. No, yeah, that being said, I do agree that there is definitely films out there, especially even this year, who have, I'd say, surpassed it in terms of kind of the ambition and the stuff the film was going for. So, yeah, there's definitely those out there. I just feel that, it, I don't know if it's, like you said, it might be because I'm looking at these films kind of in my own little bubble, but at least this year has been a year where kind of a lot of these films like this, similar to this, with similar kind of style, not necessarily same substance, but similar style, have kind of become kind of prominent. Like I'd say, Last and First Men, uh, The Wanting Mirror, even some shorts like Jonathan Glazer's Strasbourg, 1518, which I know you guys didn't like at all, but just personally for me, it worked really, really well. So I feel it's just a matter of personal opinion. And obviously, as I keep on watching more films and as we all keep on watching more films, our taste is gonna evolve. Like. I can't tell you how different my taste is today than it was five years ago, but I definitely can see that this is probably going to be a turning point for a lot of us in terms of reaching out and watching other films. Not to fire back, (laughs) but I just have to make one mention, right? Because I I think by what I've just said there is that I've literally just expressed the most, oh, no, like, sorry, so then I I just have to just... uh, fire back and just just make a, a slight statement because i think what i've just said then is the absolute um i'm gonna say this i just i think what i've just said there is probably one of the most like <laughs> unself-aware issues that, that i have an issue with myself is that going to watch foreign films and going to watch independent stuff like this is a very expensive endeavor because ultimately if you live in a small town this sort of stuff is not accessible and ultimately you are given the blockbuster element because it's the most um, satisfying to a wider audience. And I granted, uh, being at Fantasia is a privilege, and I fully understand that. And I think, I think not. not I, don't, I don't want to condescend anybody who 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 likes their bubble. I think that's a good thing. But I think anyone who who really likes this type of cinema, I think that is a disservice not to explore it slightly more than than, than people in fact are. However completely understand if, if 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 that is something that people a can't afford to do and, and and b don't really have the time to and i think yes this does its job however how you like it and i think at the end of the day yes i think it's a good thing to explore more foreign cinema because ultimately there's filmmakers out there people have never heard of who will make cinema um, that you absolutely adore however granted it's difficult to sort of assess that because we live in a world now where accessibility has always been an issue with film. And I think more so now than ever is that we're living in an era where there's such as like this frown upon 
um, trying to access cinema like this. And, and if you like this stuff like you do, Diego, I think you should have absolutely no problem. However, I will just like to say that but there, there, is, there is a great deal of film out there that does this job, if not better, but that's not to sort of say that um, anything against uh, Simex whatsoever. I just hope that, um, you know, stuff like Fantasia and well, film festivals in general need to sort of open their eyes and, and, and ears to, to people who, who are from diverse and marginalised backgrounds. Other than that, you get, you know, more culture. You, ch- you can change a lot of stuff with just having sort of more informative culture in your life, um, not, not only through your express, expressions, um, but also through your ideology as well. So I think it's an interesting thing that's going to happen. But moving on from uh, She Dies Tomorrow, moving to something hopefully more quaint and easygoing, is, of course, James Darcy's Maiden Ripley. You know a tenderist. It's now. You know an abbot. Yeah, I know what a bloody app is, Jack. Okay, well, tender's a sort of dating app. On a computer? No, it's an app. It's on your phone. On your phone? Yes, it's an app. Just stop saying it's a fucking app. Well, it is. Oh, I despair. What happened to dancing? The well-timed drink. Miracle of a chance encounter. Well, now they've got this algorithm that replaces chance with probability, so you're less likely to be disappointed. Oh, bullshit. Disappointment is an absolute certainty. Everyone lets everyone down at some point. How you come back from that, that's romance. A bohemian artist travels from London to Italy with his estranged son to sell the house they inherited from his late wife. I'll start this as I reviewed it for the site. Um, for the most part, I think as a directorial debut is going, I think we're sort of looking quite a lot of uh, directorial debuts as of late, which is an interesting thing. Um, just to just to note, this is actually from James Darcy, who who, who played Jarvis in Endgame, who, who's, who's worked with the Chowskis a few times. Um, quite a well-respected British actor in his own right. He's done a lot of stuff. Got a really good filmography. This is his um, directorial debut, so interesting to see sort of a late bloomer behind the uh, camera. But I think that's always a good thing so that they can sort of be engulfed in a lot of, um, you know, different filmmakers, different styles, really sort of get a palette. I think, I don't think it's an issue um, as a filmmaker to be a late bloomer. In fact, you know, if, if you look at the likes of Terrence Malick, I think he's, in, he's probably improved having his breaks. And I think Kubrick as well. I think there's a good argument there. Anyway, going back to the film. The one thing I have issue with directorial debuts from an actor is ego. And I think you have it with a Lost River. You have it with a, a, a lot of issues where, uh, direct, uh, direct, uh, actors become directors and then they, they put this aesthetic in very similar to people they have worked with of not having a voice of their own. But I'm happy to report that this is the exact opposite. I think this is a feature that leaves all ego at the door and puts forward not only a poignant but killing, uh, compelling feature, um, but it has really has a heartfelt encouragement to it as well. And I think I'm going to touch on that um, a little bit later um, because I think a lot of people might not know about it, but uh, I'll, I'll just mention it after my points here. I think... Uh, going back to Darcy, I think he concentrates on delivering on his characters and therefore screenplay. It's so character central. I was so refreshed watching this the other day and being like, thank fuck that we've got a director who actually cares about his characters and actually or he or she cares about her characters and really wants to indulge on, on that uh, nitty gritty sort of um, engagement value between two people who don't particularly get on with each other. And And I think in turn that elevates what could be argued as, as a simplistic narrative. I think that can be leveled to you, but nevertheless, I think it's an incredibly engaging, compelling story. Um, I think Neeson is is influential towards the features of you would imagine. I think he puts a relatively good, good performance forward. I don't think he's doing anything different. And I think Aline is going to make a comment about, about his sort of story arc here, which I think everyone will find quite interesting, but 
I, I think for the most part, I don't think he puts a foot wrong, but I don't think he elevates it um, regarding his sort of acting ability um, in the other way either. I think this the interesting one here is, is I believe it's uh, Michael Richardson, which is his actual son in real life. I think he puts a, de- puts a, a decent performance forward. However, I think it's quite clear that he isn't quite there yet regarding honing in his talents. And I don't think that's a detriment to the young performer. This is only his third film. I mean, he's, his word in Vox looks and he's actually played um, Neeson's son again in, uh, in Cold Pursuit a, a couple of years ago. So this is only his third film and he's worked with his father twice and he's worked on his own once. And I think we can always have conversations about nepotism, but at the end of the day, he's here where he is. Let's just talk about it now. And I think, he isn't there just yet. However, that's not to say that he's not putting a good performance forward. I think his emotive range is slightly underwhelming. But nevertheless, I think working with his father on screen undoubtedly helps not only his body of work, but I think his confidence throughout the film um, is, is far better as, as, it's, as it goes on. Um, I think more often than not, he's an actor that feels like he's, he's, he's holding something back. Um, but I think this is where I want to touch on the mention beforehand. This film works on slightly a different um, meta uh, value because uh, this film encapsulates really the real-life tragedy that happened with Liam Neeson's wife and Michael's mother um, in an accident that, that, that she had an aneurysm. I think she was skiing. Now, we've talked about She Dies Tomorrow, of Amy Simetz's his film being quite an allegory for, for a real-life cathartic issue that she needed to put forward and go through. And I think this is, if this is done very much more on the nose, but I found it to be not only really refreshing, but I was slightly devastated throughout of how emotional it was. It, it felt like these two people were not just getting out issues through their characters, but they were voicing really hard-hitting personalization of, of grief and trauma. Uh, and, and and this incredibly personal piece of the father-son duo, um, I, th- I, th- I was sort of like really compelled by it. And again, the young, the young actor's conviction isn't 100%, but his commitment is unquestionable. And all in all, I found that Darcy's Made in Italy, I don't think it will light the world in glory. And I don't think everyone will go around and scream and shout, James Darcy's the next big thing. Everyone has to go watch Made in Italy. But nonetheless, I think it's a really strong and confident and well-executed feature with strong performances. And very similar to Summerland, I think it's the opposite I think a lot of people might have. And it's interesting to, to get Carson's and, and, and possibly Jakob's opinion on it if he was here, because I think there was two issues there where I think Jakob in particular said that it had a lot to say and he didn't say it. And I think this is a film that learns actually by Jessica Swale's sort of slight mistake by that. And it does have those conversations. It doesn't sort of just brood in the background. And it's like, you know, we know there's an issue gone wrong and the film doesn't want to touch about it, touch on it, so to say. It just wants to sort of have that in the background and, and, and this meandering theme. Here, it's all game. Darcy really does sort of um, sink his teeth into it. And, and I think it's a really refreshing, almost meta approach. Um, but I've been, I'm, I'm sort of relatively, really, really, really heartwarmed on. So I found Made in Italy to be a very quaint film. It was sweet. The first thing that struck me about it was this is very much a film that if theaters were open everywhere right now, uh, the like over 50 
Graham Parent crowd would really enjoy this movie. Um, and the other thing that I was thinking was, is Liam Neeson in therapy? Because I think he should be. Because this is like, the, we just talked about this before we started recording, but this is another movie that Liam Neeson is starring in with a prematurely dead wife. And maybe it is something therapeutic for him, especially with his son being in this, but it's just odd that he keeps doing movies with like a dead wife. I'm just like, my guy, are you okay? I don't know if Liam Neeson is okay. Um, I thought Liam Neeson was great in this film. It, he didn't really do anything like special. It just felt like the same old Liam Neeson, but at least he's good. His son, I didn't realize it was his son until after the film and I was like looking at the cast list and all that. And even then they have like different last names because Michael has his mother's, his late mother's last name. Um, I didn't, now knowing that they're like real life father and son, I kind of uh, like see the film in a different light. But as I was watching it, to me, it didn't feel like their father-son relationship was very believable. And I know in the film that it's been about, like, 15 years, like, since the mother had died, that they've had, like, a very strange relationship. And this is, like, the first time they're having, like, any sort of, like, proper conversation in, like, at least a decade. Um, but knowing that Liam Neeson and Michael Richardson are, like, father and son, it's odd to me that their relationship seems so off in this movie. And the other thing is, I don't understand the point of the romantic subplot when, like, uh, Michael Richardson falls in love with the, like, Italian, like, restaurant girl. It just, like, it felt like, what's the point of this? Because this is something, we're supposed to be focusing on, like, a father-son relationship. And I, like, why, why is this romantic subplot here? It didn't feel like it was necessary to uh, uh, Michael Richardson's character. Like, he is going through a divorce why does he need another romantic subplot, you know? You know, Made in Italy is a film that I feel is very just there. Like, not to be rude, like, I think there is the genuine emotional, like, part to it. And I think that's especially felt within the actors. But the story itself just feels very paint by numbers. And, like, even as a meditation on grief, I feel like this film just didn't really say anything that hasn't been said, you know, before. Just watching this, I felt like it was good. You know, there's not a single element in the film I would say is outright bad or, you know, like negative against the film. But also when I'm looking at what makes this film stand out as memorable or really impressive, the list is rather short. Um, like I said, I think the acting is agreed, nothing revolutionary like Lena said, but I think it is really competent, really solid, especially Liam Neeson when it comes to the more emotional moments. Um, and I think it feels genuine. Like this is a film that captures a genuine emotion it just doesn't say anything that hasn't been said before. So for that reason, I felt kind of just bland on it. Again, nothing bad, but also nothing necessarily overly special. Okay, so I definitely agree with pretty much everything that Carson said. It wasn't anything special, and but I still gave it a positive review. Like It was still a good film, but it, there was nothing really that made it stand out. Like, yeah, the kind of the conflict and everything going on was kind of paint by the numbers in the first five minutes they just blatantly tell you exactly what the film is going to be about and exactly what he needs to do and what his goals are which i like it to be a little bit more of a drip when they're kind of telling me about that in films and here they kind of just it was just very very obvious kind of what was going on and what exactly they were trying to tell you 
But overall, I still feel it was a decent film. A good watch if you want to watch something just kind of like not anything challenging. If you just want something uplifting, then it's definitely a good watch on a weekend. But honestly, I wouldn't say I recommend it if you're looking for anything challenging and groundbreaking. Just going off our conversation we quickly had with She Dies Tomorrow, this is a directorial debut, and I will say where this does not have a lot of ambition, this is a film that shows a lot of promise. I think it confidently shows that uh, the director can handle emotional arcs that are personal. He can work with directors who obviously have a personal tie to the story. I think this is a really interesting counterpoint to She Dies Tomorrow, where, like I said, this film is very paint-by-numbers. It doesn't have a lot of ambition. It really does show a lot of promise. So I think just going to this overall element, you can look at it with this episode with ambition versus promise. I'm actually kind of shocked that these two films work so well in that conversation together, considering one is really ambitious, but in my opinion, doesn't show a ton of promise. One does not show a ton of ambition, but shows a lot of promise in my opinion. Yeah, that's one of the things I would have to say that is like really good, especially considering that it's a directorial debut. You can tell that he knows the basics and he's very familiar with them and he knows how to execute them properly. So yeah, I would say that this is a very promising film for him because now that it's clear that he's kind of mastered the basics and knows how to hit the kind of the standard beats, I'm hoping to be able to see a little bit more of an evolution in his next films. But the fact that he was able to properly execute every single thing in this film was a really promising trait to me. And I, even though it kind of sounds, even though it's kind of something I wouldn't expect myself to say, I am looking forward to his next films to see how he evolves from here. There are a few issues, I think, that Darcy presents through his immature, not immaturity, but a maturity level of, of, of understanding the craft as well as a director would do. Because I think writing a screenplay is very different to sort of directing that very screenplay because I think you realise what works and what doesn't. Sometimes on the page, it doesn't correspond to working in an image. And I think the one thing he does is that he overanalyzes and overindulges in the fact that Michael and Liam Neeson's character, um, which I forget his name, which is my fault, um, they, they, they have like this third act where they just repeatedly go back and forth for the same thing. They have an issue, they talk about it, they come to, play, to peace and not blows. And then it repeats itself about three or four times to the point where it, it becomes so excessive. I, I think it's an issue where... Darcy isn't quite confident in, in making a point and then let it laying it brew. He has to keep on hitting that door. And I think it's a confidence issue more than anything else. And I think it's a very similar issue if a writer has. If, if a writer writes a statement and they don't quite think they've nailed it, they'll just repeatedly write the same thing in a different, um, different manner, getting to the same point A to B, but, but you've just written it four times. And I think it's, it's, a, it's an issue I have with my writing. I think I can identify it within the film because it felt so, so similar. I mean, there's, so, there's only so many times that these two can have the same conversation about very little small things and have this blow up and not just have the whole conversation outright. And it felt that these two, especially Michael's, uh, Michael's character, um, had, had, has more so a grudge because he was too young to remember this, this accident in question. And maybe contextually it works like that, but it felt like a grudge that was a never itching grudge that was going to go on forever. And I still think towards the end of the film, I still think that I don't, I don't think it cap, capitalizes on them becoming sort of friends or becoming friendly. I think that it could easily go on for another half an hour with Michael then having another issue and another issue. It just didn't feel, feel like it sort of came to a sort of natural organic ending where everything came together. Perhaps that's Darcy's um, maturity level as, as a filmmaker and as, as a writer, not quite 
understanding or, or bringing everything together and contextual being a directorial debut that seems pretty much appropriate so that's not an issue per se but it just felt like it was an ongoing cycle that never wanted to end i see what you mean about uh like the, it being a never-ending cycle but i also think that made in italy is an interesting look at grief especially um between like the father and son because Liam Neeson lost his wife in the film and Richardson lost his mother in the film and the conflict is like them not knowing how to talk to each other to work through that grief so I think with them constantly going over and over again it's them not quite being able to get through that grief together until it finally happens and I, I there was quite a few scenes um that I found like quite interesting that like touched on grief and that's why I had such an issue with like the subplot of like the romance because it should just be like a film discussing like grief and all these things and I don't think the subplot tied into that um like for example the point I think like Michael Ra Michael Richardson's character is uh, named Jack as well um but like he he finds something that Liam Neeson's been hiding from him and he gets like very very upset and he just says I don't know how to handle grief and I think that's like the main thing with this film and that's why that him and Liam Neeson's character keep going back and forth it's like neither of them, neither of them know how to handle the grief of losing their wife and mother even though it's been 15 years and I guess like uh renovating the house in Italy is finally the way to get them to do that I'm just going to slightly contradict myself here, but I won't be sort of out of the norm. I just said that that, that Darcy isn't particularly like mature at the level of maturity as a, as a director probably should be uh, to understand uh, the arc of, of of a film. However, I will say that one thing he does that I thought was quite powerful that he doesn't actually show the character of the wife and the mother. I, I felt within the whole um, running time of the film, and I think. A weird comparison, but I think it's the same technique using Jaws, and, and, and I think Alfred Hitchcock is the originator of it, where not showing something on screen is far more effective. Um, but I, I, will, I will say that the, the technique of not showing the mother in the film is an incredibly effective technique because ultimately you feel in the same way that, that, that Michael Richardson's Jack does, is that he never really has a memory of her. He doesn't know what she looked like. She, she, he doesn't remember her smile. He remembers snippets. Of, of things that are revealed down the line. I think that's his idea of grief is that he's grieving for something he doesn't really l know. He doesn't really have an identity of. And I think that's what his issue is. And I think the comparison that is that Liam Neeson's character is engulfed by that because every waking breath he has is a memory about that, that, that woman. And I think the ideology of grief and this sort of psychoanalysis of it is very interesting how both actors' uh, performance are sort of um, respond on that level of one having the both of them needing to grieve but both of them grieving with with a, an identity of someone on both different ranges of, um, of, of of memory what i will say to that is that perhaps on that at that extent that could probably magnified far more if michael richardson was probably just a few years older with more credits under his belt because i think he underwhelms on that front not being able to emotively construct those those thoughts and feelings into a personification of a character now i don't want to go at him for that because i think again three credits to your name again nepotism is undoubtedly here but 
that's not to that's not to go against. I think there's probably something there for 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 Michael to go forward with. I just think that this perhaps, ironically enough, we're talking about the manifestation of grief and going through it, and 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 having to to come um, to a point where the, you feel happy uh, and you feel um, acceptance of that uh, that that theme. I think that Michael's probably too young as an actor and too uh, not mature enough to sort of comprehend how that performance interweaves within the film. And it, it sort of does that ironic level that his character himself um, within the film is struggling with that notion as well. So it's an interesting sort of element I, I, I picked up on, but overall, again, I, I think there's an interesting sort of ideology on grief and how not only the acceptance of it, but having to live with it, it's not something you just accept and move on. It's something that you live with. And I think the film does an interesting angle on Liam Neeson's part, but again, it's an interesting, it's a difficult film to sort of feel for these characters outside the grief level, because ultimately you don't really know much about Jack aside from his own personal levels. And again, like Alina mentioned, this little subplot of his romance sort of undercuts um, him being able to be happy because he was married beforehand, but that's within the film. And again, these both the quite high-end earners within the London um, arts scene, and they're trying to sell this house to buy an art studio and ultimately, you sort of again, it's one of those things where it's excessiveness in, in regards to having to have characters have money to make them have a personality trait. If these two were just working class people from 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 Ireland or from London, I think it's far more effective than having this sort of approach of money means excessive uh, money means personality, and we can go in more ways. Again, I think Darcy sort of does that by by appro approaching character in the way he does but i just think it could have gone that extra step well to end on made in italy but to uh, round out clapper cast we'd like to end on some of our latest film or tv recommendations carson you fire ahead first look so after the kissing booth two last week i guess i was just feeling ambitious and i just wanted to watch some more teen shit so i checked out this film called looks that kill came out this year uh, stars a kid from 13 Reasons Why, and it has the plot of a boy being, and I quote, lethally attractive to where if anyone sees his face because he is so hot, it will kill people. Went into this expecting an absolute just shit show. And what I got amazed me. This is a legitimate film of like genuine emotional depth that works in this strange Swiss army man way. It is not this cringy teen movie. It has good acting, good writing. It explores its themes in really interesting ways, almost with the callbacks like Dr. Sleep. It is so strange to me. How I watched this movie, I went in expecting just absolutely horrible and every single promotional material, the trailer, the poster, everything makes it look like it's gonna be terrible. It was dumped on VOD, no one talked about this film. But if this premiered at Sundance, I legitimately think this could have been like a film people are talking about throughout the year as being like one of the more clever screenplays. I was legitimately amazed by this film. It's not necessarily like best of the year, but it was a legitimately well-made, intriguing film with good emotion. And for a film where it literally is about a kid who, I, again, this is the quote they use, is lethally attractive. I mean, I cannot recommend this enough. It is amazing. It is shocking how good this is. Let's move on now to Diego. So with the release of I'm Thinking of Ending Things in about a month, I've kind of started on my Charlie Kaufman binge. I haven't watched much of his work before. The only one I had watched was Being John Malkovich. And a couple of days ago, I rewatched it because it came back on American Netflix. And it's just still like a surreal fever dream because it's, it's like it looks as if it's going to be generic, 
but then the way it plays out it just it it's just i don't know how to describe it it's just like such a surreal way that it plays out and it just it's just like a dream like my brother also watched it with me and he said it himself like if there if i had a dream about that what turned into a movie this would be how the movie would look and i highly recommend it if you haven't watched it i'd say it's a good place to start with Kaufman cuz it's not like so i'd say like different that it's like not accessible like i'm sure many people would be able to watch it and think it's a weird movie but they would be able to enjoy it but yeah definitely check it out if you haven't yet alina your recommendations for this week okay so mine's a little political I watched this documentary recently on Canopy called More Than a Word. And it's made, I don't remember his name, but it's made by like a few indigenous filmmakers. And it's a documentary on um, like Indian mascots used in like sports teams. So I watched it because Washington recently announced that they're changing their name uh, along with Edmonton, their CFL team, their American football team is changing their name because it's also a slur so I wanted to watch it to see um like where indigenous people are coming from because obviously I know it's bad but I wanted to like know why and like have an explanation from them and what I like about the film is it talks with a lot of like indigenous leaders and it also talks with like fans of like these specific teams and so it gives them like both a fair side, but it also does a really good job of making the people trying to defend these like racial slurs as like mascots look utterly ridiculous because when the filmmakers are showing the like Washington fans, they're like out there in like war bonnets and like red face and they just look so ridiculous defending, saying like, oh, we're honoring indigenous people. Meanwhile, they're wearing war bonnets and red face. And that's just so like, blatantly racist it's ridiculous and I think it's like a very important thing to watch right now because football is like getting like such a big like hit from Washington changing their name but I we also need to remember that the use of indigenous people as mascots is not just in football it's in baseball too with like the Cleveland Indians and I think hockey is really getting um like skating by it Haha, <laughs> skating by it. That was not an intentional pun, but that's funny. Um, like the Chicago Blackhawks, everyone's saying, well, like, oh, the Chicago Blackhawks are fine because they're uh, they're honoring indigenous people. And if you really look into it, it's not. Uh, it's, I don't, you can watch the documentary to like learn more, but we need to like make sure that all of these team names go away. Like, and I think this documentary is like a really good starting point for that. So yeah, again, it's called More Than a Word. It's on Canopy. I highly recommend it. A great selection of uh, four diverse films for recommendation this week. But that is it for this week's episode of Clappercast. Where can we find everyone on social media? Alina? I'm Alina Folds on Twitter and Letterboxd. Carson? I'm Carson Tamar on Letterboxd or on Twitter. You can find me at BP underscore movie reviews. That's the best place just to find all my reviews and bad opinions. Diego? You can find me both on Twitter and Letterboxd at the Diego Andaluz, and that's A-N-D-A-L-U-Z. And you can find me on both Letterboxd and Twitter with the username at JetLukeSharp. And you can find all the latest releases of film and television reviewed at www.clapperltd.co.uk and find our social links on Clapper at Facebook and at ClapperLTD on Twitter. You can also find us on Letterboxd with the username ClapperLTD. 
Make sure to rate, subscribe, or follow us to be notified when the next episode comes out. Thank you all for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss all things cinema.